before he died in the Lord, uh, I remember FaceTiming with my Opa. Opa was in the hospital at the time, uh, and despite weakening health, he always wanted to talk Scripture. John 1.18 was the text that afternoon. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's the key, he told me. Once you see that Jesus is God, everything else in the Bible makes sense. It just falls into place. People have got to understand that. I won't forget those words. And my aim this Advent is to give you that key. It's to strengthen your confession that Jesus is, in fact, God. It's to help you behold God's glory in His Son who became flesh to save us. We started an Advent series, Jesus, True God from True God. And we're studying the deity of Jesus from John's Gospel and Revelation. Uh, Last week we covered the intro to John's Gospel. John begins his portrait of Jesus with a story about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we find the Word's eternal existence, the Word's personal communion with God the Father, and even His divine nature as God. And then comes one of the most remarkable sentences in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt Among us. John doesn't mean the word forfeited or limited his deity. He means the word added to himself a human nature. Not deity turned into man, not man swallowed up by deity, but one person with two natures truly God, truly man. And of this word made flesh, John then says, We have seen his. Glory. Remember, God's Word is His personal self-expression. And when the eternal Word becomes flesh, God's personal self-expression occurs. It, and in that human self-expression, John witnesses glory, he says, as of the only Son from the Father. And he names him Jesus Christ in verse 17. And so John's portrait of Jesus begins with Jesus' unique identity. The word or Jesus' identity is that of divine son. He holds deity in common with the father, but he does so as the father's son. He also is the only son from the Father. That's Jesus' unique mission. Not only was the Word or the Son with the Father eternally, that's verse 1, He came from the Father in history. That's verse 14. He has a mission. And John unfolds that mission in his Gospel, and as he writes, John testifies to Jesus' unique glory. We have seen his glory. 
In other words, I've already seen it. I followed him. I put my head in his chest that night at dinner. I saw the soldier pierce his side. I witnessed the empty tomb. I've seen glory as of the only son from the father. And I'm writing a gospel so that you will see his glory too. But how exactly did John witness this unique glory? How could John, a monotheistic Jew, have the guts to include Jesus within the divine identity? That's at the height of blasphemy for Jews. What did John witness that leads him to say, this Jesus, the the Word, was God? It's not like Jesus walked around with a halo and blinding brilliance. We know from other places in Scripture His glory was veiled. How then did John witness God's glory in Jesus? Four ways, and these four ways convince John that Jesus is God and they ought to convince us too. Number one, John witnesses God's glory in Jesus' words. In Jesus' words. Someone could say, Jesus' words are God's words, just like other prophets' words are God's words. There's certainly much overlap, and Jesus is the superior prophet. But John's gospel clarifies something more about Jesus' words. To begin, John actually contrasts Jesus with John the Baptist, who is the prophet of all prophets. He's, John the Baptist is even an agent sent from God, like Jesus in John 1.6. But his status differs with Jesus. Look at verse 8 of John 1. John was not the light... He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Or chapter 1, verse 15, from John the Baptist himself. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was, or he existed before me. John speaks, in other words, with unequal status with God. Jesus speaks with equal status As God. And more than that, John the Baptist says this in chapter 3, verse 32. He who comes from above is above all. That's Jesus. He who is of the earth, that's John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So Jesus has a unique privilege unknown to a mere prophet or angelic mediator. Jesus speaks of what he has beheld with God himself. Also, Jesus speaks only God the Father's words. Only. John 12, verse 50. What I say, I say as the Father has told me. Or John 14, 10. 
The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. In other words, God the Father reveals Himself not just through Jesus' words, but in Jesus' words. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 33 and 34 reveals that truth even further. Whoever receives Jesus, Jesus' testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So follow the logic here. Jesus has the Spirit without measure from the Father, meaning Jesus utters the words of God Always, such that to hear Jesus is to hear the Father. And to receive Jesus' words shows not merely that Jesus is true, but that God Himself is true. And even more, Jesus' words have the power to give life. In the Old Testament, only God gives life. But in John's Gospel, Jesus' words spare the life of the official's son, and later they summon the dead Lazarus out of the, uh, out of the tomb. Now, someone could object, yeah, but Elijah did the same, raising people from the dead. True. But something that sets Jesus apart is that he has life in himself. John chapter 1, verse 4. In Him was life. You find the same truth in John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. No prophet could claim that. And that puts Jesus in the God category who is the only self-sufficient one. Also, John chapter 5, verse 25 says this, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then John 5, 28 and 29. Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in verse 25, we see that Jesus' words awaken the spiritually dead in the present... And then in 28 and 29, we see that Jesus' words will awaken the physically dead at the resurrection. So it's no wonder that people respond to Jesus' words as they do. They marvel over his teaching. They say no one ever spoke like this man. They accuse him of blasphemy for him making himself equal to God. The disciples say, you have words of eternal life. According to John, Jesus' words reveal God directly. He heard not just the word of God mediated through another sent prophet from below. He heard the word of God spoken by God. 
the sent son from above. Number two, John witnesses God's glory in Jesus' works. In Jesus' works. God the Father entrusts Jesus with a mission, and that mission includes works. The Son always knows these works, and the Son accomplishes them unwaveringly. So don't think Jesus does the Father's works under compulsion. Oh, all right. Never. He does the works because the Father's will is His will. John 5.19 The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What that means is this. As Jesus does the Father's works, He reveals the Father. That's what Jesus tells the Jews in chapter 10, verse 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So the Father and Son are so united that to see Jesus working is to see God working. Uh, Jesus nearly got stoned for this in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus heals a guy to fulfill the Sabbath. The Jews miss it. They get mad because he's working on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And you know what they heard? My work is God's work. That's all I do, is God's work. That's what they're hearing Jesus say. And that was enough for them to discern that he was making himself equal to God. But the point was that in Jesus' works, people were to see God revealed, God working, God saving. Now, to be clear, Jesus did receive works that the Scriptures reserve for a human Messiah. A human Savior. But John places those works within a grander story of God the Son Himself becoming that Messiah. Becoming that human Messiah. Think think back to His intro for just a minute. We saw that the Word was personally distinct from God. But the Word also creates the world as God. And so right from the get-go, the Son's work in creation is nothing other than God's work. And John wants you to read the rest of his Gospel in light of that. So... 
The Son's work is always nothing other than God's work. And then the same is true when He takes on humanity to become our Savior. All His works are the works of God. And in them we should see a peculiar glory. And that becomes really explicit when John's Gospel then focuses on a few signs in particular that reveal Jesus' glory. He changes water into wine. He heals the official's son. He heals the invalid man. He feeds the 5,000. He heals the blind man. He raises Lazarus. And we can't look at all these today, but, but you'll find phrases in them like, He manifested His glory. Or... Uh, with Lazarus, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. What's the point? To reveal God's glory in Jesus' works. The chief work, though, is that of Jesus' cross, which brings us to number three. John witnesses God's glory in Jesus' death on the cross. That's contrary to the way we think, isn't it? Death on a cross? The cross is a place of shame. How can you speak in terms of glory? Good question. But in John's Gospel, the cross becomes the climactic revelation of God's glory in His Son. So John's Gospel, he drives his entire story toward an appointed hour. You know, you, you, you get this, uh, like with, with uh, Mary and the wedding at Cana, and Jesus says, you know, woman, what does this have to do with me? You know, my hour has not yet come. And, and so then all throughout the rest of the gospel, it, the whole story is driving towards this, this hour. What hour? It's the hour of Jesus' death. And Jesus describes that hour as his own glorification. Okay? That hour of his death, he links it with his own glorification. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he compares his death with a grain of wheat that must fall into the ground and die in order to bear fruit. And then he prays this in verse 27. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And we get the same uh, in chapter 13. He says it again, but we'll go to chapter 17, verse 1. The Father, he says again in another prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus' humiliation on the cross is God displaying glory in His Son. Now to help grasp this, let's let's get in the Old Testament for just a minute and understand what, what, what is meant by God's glory. God's glory is the, the weighty, Just pull in from the the Hebrew word there, kavod, heavy, weight, weightiness. The weighty display 
of the intrinsic worth and goodness of the invisible God. God's glory is the weighty display of the intrinsic worth and goodness of the invisible God. God is invisible. His glory is when His intrinsic worth and goodness go public. Okay, sometimes that happened through a theophany. Like you can think of when God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and his glory passes by. Or you can think of the glory cloud descending and filling the tabernacle so that the, the priest, you know, they can't even go inside. The, 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 the weight of God's presence is there. More often, though, people witness God's glory when God acted to judge and save. Okay? You, you can't see God, but you can see Pharaoh's army being hurled into the Red Sea and drowned. And you can see the people of God standing on the other side saved. And Exodus 15 is a song of this glory of God being displayed in an act of judgment and salvation. So God's worth went public in judgment and salvation. John characterizes Jesus' death on the cross as both an act of God's judgment and an act of God's salvation. God displays His righteousness and His love in the death of Jesus. God's righteousness demands an outpouring of wrath on sinners. This is John 3.36. Whoever doesn't obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Also in chapter 5, verse 24, those without eternal life will come into judgment, which John says is condemnation. That's what everybody deserves for their rebellion against God. But in His love, God makes provision for sinners without compromising His righteousness. Despite the judgment that the world deserves, God chooses to love the world by giving His Son. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world... That He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So why will they not perish, though, if they believe in the Son? Because God gives His Son as the sacrificial lamb in their place. This is why God the Son becomes man. He becomes man to endure the penalty for humans. That's why He had to take on flesh. And then in John chapter 18, verse 11, Jesus characterizes his death in terms of willingly drinking the cup. The cup is an Old Testament image for God's wrath. Also in Jesus' death, God passes his sentence of judgment. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. In other words, the cross is where God displays the glory of His righteousness 
in judging sinners. And at the same time, God displays the glory of his love by giving his son to endure that punishment for sinners. As one author put it, this turns awful news of judgment on sin at the cross into the good news of deliverance from condemnation through the cross. So the cross becomes the revelation of the invisible God and what he's like. To see Jesus dying is to see God himself judging and God himself loving and God himself revealed. And John goes even further, though, by by describing Jesus' death as the point where Jesus is, is lifted up. It's lifted up. You hear this idea three times from Jesus' lips. The, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Or when I am lifted up. The idea of Jesus being lifted up contains a double meaning. The Romans... So, looking at it on the human plane, the Romans are going to lift Jesus up on a cross to be crucified. But from God's perspective, God will simultaneously be lifting up His Son in the sense of exalting Him. How do I know that? Because John borrows the language Isaiah normally applies, this idea of lifting up, same language that uh, Isaiah normally applies to Yahweh and His temple mount being lifted up or exalted in his, in his prophecies. Six times Isaiah says that Yahweh or His temple will be lifted up above all other kingdoms. There's only one exception. And that's when Isaiah applies the same language to the suffering servant. In Isaiah 52, verse 13. In other words, Isaiah applies the same language to his suffering servant that he applies to Yahweh throughout the rest of his prophecy. And John carries that over and basically says, when you see Jesus lifted up on the cross, what you ought to see is God exalting his kingdom above all others. What you ought to see is God defeating His enemies. What you ought to see is God's glory in His servant conquering sin and conquering death and conquering the devil. That's what you ought to see at the cross. And so Jesus' death paradoxically becomes the point where God displays His worth and His goodness supremely in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody has eyes to see the cross that way. Not even John had the eyes to see the cross that way. And he's very honest about that, which adds to the credibility of his gospel. It wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that John gained a true understanding. And that leads to point number four. John witnesses God's glory in and through Jesus' spirit granting a post-resurrection understanding of the Scriptures. 
He witnesses God's glory in and through Jesus' spirit, granting a post-resurrection understanding of the scriptures. So this understanding comes after the resurrection. John chapter 12, verse 16. I didn't get this one on the screen, but it's very clear. And if you just want to write these three passages down, John 12, 16, John 2, verse 22, and uh, John 20, verse 9. All, all three of these uh, are basically stating the same thing. His dis- uh, John 12, 16, though, I'll read to you. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. So this is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Gets on the donkey. Everybody's saying, Hosanna on highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quote from Isaiah 9, 9. And then it says, his disciples didn't understand these things at first. They didn't know what was going on. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. These glorious things about Jesus weren't clear at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they understood. Now, why did they understand? Well, very briefly, the other way Jesus is glorified in John's gospel is when Jesus returns to the Father. But once he's glorified in that sense, again, with the Father, being rewarded for the work he completed, when he's glorified in that sense, he sends the Holy Spirit on his disciples. And if you read chapters 14 to 16 in John's gospel, the Spirit then guides the disciples into all truth... He teaches them all things. He reminds them of Jesus' teachings, including the way Jesus read the Old Testament. And all of this, all of the Spirit's illuminating work, John characterizes as the Spirit glorifying Jesus. The Spirit, in other words shines the spotlight on Jesus so that they see Him as He really is. John 16, verse 14 says, The Spirit will glorify Me. This is Jesus talking. The Spirit will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and He will declare it to you. So the Gospel you hold in your hand is the result of Jesus' Spirit Glorifying Jesus. <laughs> That's what this is. That's why you need to pick it up and read it. Jesus' spirit is shining the spotlight on Jesus by helping the disciples understand who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how the Old Testament talks about Jesus. Now, one of the ways the spirit glorifies Jesus is by applying to Jesus things that were exclusively reserved for Yahweh in the Old Testament. Okay? So, John 1.1. 1, 1. We've already been there. He alludes to Genesis 1.1 1, 1 to show that the Word is the Creator God. John 1, chapter 5, refers to Jesus as the light. And that's applied very often to God in the Old Testament. In His presence, light abounds. 
And by his presence, light often came to his people, whether that was visibly or morally. Uh, I mentioned God's glory filling the tabernacle, the glory cloud filling the tabernacle or filling the temple. John 1.14 says the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that language there of dwelling among us, John yanks that from Exodus. To then say, God's glory is now dwelling in the person of Jesus. So, in the incarnation we have the glory of God present. Just like it was present in the tabernacle. Isaiah 40 promises that God will return to save His people and display His glory before all flesh. And then John 1.23 quotes from Isaiah 40 to show that John the Baptist is the prophetic forerunner announcing God's coming glory. Only now it appears in Jesus Christ. Uh, John chapter 12 is another great example. This is verse 38 to 41. John quotes from both Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. Isaiah 53, you know, is the, is the suffering servant text. Isaiah 6, though, is the vision of the Lord, right, seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the seraphim are above him, crying, Holy, holy, holy. John concludes in John 12 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Because he saw his glory. If you read back up in the passage, the only antecedent to his is Jesus. Jesus is the one speaking these words. And so Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So Isaiah saw, the, saw glory in the servant's humility. He saw glory in God's holiness. And John says, that was Jesus' glory. Wow. Wow. That was the Word, the Son. And so other examples like this exist. Like when the soldier pierces Jesus in fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. They will look upon me, God says. They will look upon me whom they've pierced. And they pierce God the Son. Uh, uh, John, throughout his gospel, makes Jesus the object of faith. That, unless Jesus is God, that's blasphemy. All throughout the Old Testament. You don't put your faith in anybody, any man, any nation, whatsoever. You put it in Yahweh. And all throughout John's Gospel, what's he saying? Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Jesus is the object of your faith. So other examples like this exist. But the point is that Jesus' Spirit leads John to apply to Jesus concepts reserved exclusively for God in Scripture. And when he does this, the Spirit is shining the spotlight on Jesus and saying, look at this, he is God. 
The glory of God and His Son is seen here in Jesus. So Jesus' words, Jesus' works, Jesus' death, and Jesus' spirit all reveal Jesus' glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now how should that affect us this, this Advent? We'll get to some others Later, I mean, it, it gives further proof that Jesus is God and we should confess Him as so and preach Him as so. But I want to focus on, on, first on, on how the revelation of God in Jesus should shape your vision of God. For instance, some people may minimize God's holiness. They view God as more of a cosmic grandfather who spoils his grandkids despite their misbehavior. Sin isn't a big deal. You know, rarely will you hear confession and brokenness. Sin isn't that bad to them. They, they might even start comparing themselves to others in the process instead of who they are before God. They might make excuses for it, like, don't judge me, or stop being so legalistic. Gosh, they don't like accountability and true justice. Well, take it or leave it. And that all flows from a false view of God. But if the cross really is what John says it is, a revelation of God's glory and judgment, then we best see that God is indeed holy and not to be trifled with. He cares about justice. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug He condemns sin. He pours wrath out on sin. And and that vision of God's holiness at the cross should make us flee sin and hate sin and weep over sin and fall flat on our face before God when we sin. Seeking His forgiveness. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Sin is no small offense if it requires a sacrifice of infinite worth To atone for it. And at the same time, others can't imagine that God is a loving Father. Sometimes that's because they never knew a loving Father. Others did, but they still can't see how a holy God can show them love. In their eyes, sin is too great. They can't escape the constant feelings of guilt. They're always afraid. He's angry with me. It's like he's a short-tempered, ogre-like tyrant just ready to snap. But again, if the cross is what John says it is, a revelation of God's love and saving sinners, then you need to rejoice this morning and give thanks. God loves you. The gospel isn't a story about a loving son warding off his angry father. No. At the cross we see the manner in which and the degree to which the father himself loves his people. He gave up his only son. And then we see the Son Himself imaging the Father's love for us by loving His disciples to the very end, even in the face of removing their punishment. He lays down His life for the sheep. 
And even more, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Do you hear that? My hand. My Father's hand. It's the same hand holding you. It's the hand of the triune God. Father and Son are one in their love and their purpose to redeem. So take seriously Jesus' words. If you've seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. Let your view of God be shaped by His personal self-expression in Jesus. See God's glory in Jesus and you will know God more truly and more fully. And at the same time, remember that seeing Jesus' glory changed John forever. Seeing Jesus' glory will change you forever as well. We grow and mature by continuing to behold Jesus' glory. In 1 John 3, 2, so this is one of John's letters. 1 John 3, 2, this is what will eventually perfect you in glory. He says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. That's why you will change in an instant. That's why you will never sin again and be perfected in glory. You will see Him as He is. Seeing Jesus as He is transforms us into His likeness. So the more of God's glory John witnesses in Jesus, the more he became like Jesus as a disciple. Paul teaches the same in 2 Corinthians 4. Although he doesn't wait for glory, he pushes it back into the present. God is in the business of opening people's eyes to see, the, to see His glory in the face of Jesus. And then we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that He transforms believers from one, from one degree of glory to the next insofar as they keep beholding the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus. If we don't behold that glory in the sense of treasuring it and loving it and meditating upon it, we won't be changed. If you want God to sanctify you and to get rid of various sins and to make you more patient and loving and to fill you with zeal and evangelism, don't just white-knuckle this Christian walk. Right? Don't just keep on and carry on. Behold God's glory in Jesus and you will change. Change comes when the Holy Spirit enables the heart or the mind to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Don't be surprised that you're not being changed if all you do is watch ESPN highlights. 
Don't be surprised if all you do is you're beholding the next political battle on Facebook. That's not going to change you into Jesus' likeness. Change occurs when we're looking at Christ in the Gospel. And we keep looking at Christ in the Gospel. And we keep pointing each other to Christ in the Gospel. That's when we will change. And finally, let the Son's mission from the Father shape your mission. One of the amazing aspects of the Incarnation is that we witness God come down to save men. We witness God who is light taking the initiative to enter our darkness. And we even see the divine revelation in the humiliation of Jesus' Incarnation and death. And then Jesus says in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. There's a uniqueness to that sending that we cannot replicate. Like God taking on humanity. Or uh, God exalted in the death of Jesus. But there's something in that sending apparently we ought to replicate. The Father sent the Son into a dark world. And the Son came knowing it would cost Him His life. The Son humbled Himself and came to sinners of all kinds. The prostitute, the tax collector, the poor, the despised, the Roman official, the blind man. He came to all peoples no matter how sunk in sin they were. And that's how we go. We humble ourselves and enter the darkness of people's lives not to participate in the darkness, but to save from the darkness. We go to others as He came to us, a humble entry with willingness to die for another's good. As J.I. Packer puts it, it is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That's not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways, and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor to enrich their fellow humans giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. There are not as many who show this spirit as there should be, he says. If God in mercy revives us, one of the things he will do will be to work more of this spirit in our hearts and lives. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, we have witnessed with John what God is like and what His glory is like. True glory doesn't vie for the places of honor at the expense of others. True glory is characterized by taking up a cross in order to show the glory of our Father and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.